Hello, and welcome to The Five By, your favorite rapid-fire board game review podcast. This week, Stephanie starts us off by eating all of her opponents in Evolution. Sarah takes us 20,000 leagues under the sea in the second edition of Nemo's War. I'll be riding the rails in Chicago Express. Mike showcases Portuguese wine in Vinhos. And Ruth makes sacrifices to the gods to build fancier die faces in the new hotness Dice Forge. If you were to ask me what my most vivid childhood memory is, I'd say visiting the Woody Museum here in San Antonio, Texas. See, they have this amazing dinosaur exhibit just as you walked in. My favorite part was this diorama with a vast landscape of all sorts of creatures and their Jurassic joy. Right in the middle of the diorama, there was this T-Rex, jaws open, its imposing teeth on display. Next to it, a brontosaurus lying on its side in a pool of blood. It was brutal, it was graphic, and four-year-old Stephanie absolutely loved it. They recently remodeled the witty, and gone is the 1980s violence of my youth, but my fascination with these ancient animals is no less than it was before. So thematically, Evolution from North Star Games is right in my wheelhouse. In this two to six player game designed by Dominic Crapuchet, players grow and adapt their various animal species in a fight for survival of the fittest. At the start, players begin with three small emerging species. By playing trait cards from their hand, those species can become stronger or more adept at using the limited food available in this harsh world or learn to protect themselves from hungry predators. Players can also discard a card from their hand to make their animals start little animal families and increase their number in the herd. There is safety in numbers when it comes to evolutionary survival. And never underestimate just being bigger than the other guy. Lastly, you can begin to evolve a whole new creature for your animal squad. Each round, players discard one of their trait cards face down, allowing more food to be added or possibly removed for everyone's emerging species to feast on. Can't feed one of your crew? Well, say bye-bye to your Kilosaurus tops or whatever you've evolved into. But species come and species go, and your next species will be able to adapt better, assuming you have the trait cards to create a, I don't know, a hard-shelled flyosaur to thwart the attacks of your opponent's hangry carnivore. The fallout is surveyed, and then players draw up their trait cards to evolve their survivors another day. Play continues until that trait deck is emptied, and a winner is determined with points given out for food eaten throughout the game, and how well evolved a player's surviving species have become. I've played this game dozens of times with probably 20, 25 different people. I've seen every strategy from eat before you're eaten, aggressive players, to the defend and hide cautious ones, and everything in between. And that's probably what I like most about this game, beyond my aforementioned thematic fascination. There really seems to be no perfect way to play, no ideal strategy. And with the ability to transform your species with almost unlimited variation, the gameplay doesn't get stale, even after your third play of the night, and yes, I'm talking about me. In spite of all the choices and paths to victory, the game is 
super easy to teach. The box boasts a 50 to 70 minute playing time, but expect that range to lean heavier on the 70N. While I think the game plays best with three or four players, I've never felt cheated when playing as a two-player game, nor do I feel that five or six bogs things down. Lastly, the game is great to look at. I do want to give a huge shout out to Catherine Hamilton, whose illustrations grace the trait cards used in the game. Also, there's a dinosaur-shaped starting player marker and, well, you know, amusing components get a few bonus points for me. Evolution from North Star Games retails for about $55 and can be found wherever fine games are sold. For the 5 by, I'm Stephanie Stone-Rob, and until next time, stay playful. Nemo's War 2nd Edition is a one-player game. That's right. A one-player game in a decently big box with lots of pretty cardboard just for solo play. Designed by Chris Taylor, launched on Kickstarter last year by Victory Point Games, and released for retail in 2017. In fact, just a few weeks ago. You play Captain Nemo, main character of Jules Verne's novel 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea. In each game, you choose one of four motives. War, exploration, science, or anti-imperialism. Your motive changes the points assigned to different actions, which influences how you spend your time during the game. Each turn begins with a card from the adventure deck, and then you can use your actions traveling the oceans in Nemo's submarine the Nautilus, searching for treasure, attacking enemy ships, trying to see wonders and making scientific discoveries, or inciting insurrection. To improve your chances of success at any of these actions, you can exert one of your three resources, the crew, the ship, or Nemo himself. This is not without risk. If you exert a resource and fail the action anyway, you lose a space on that resource's track, which will eventually make the resource less effective and cost you points at the end of the game. You can also gain back spaces on the resource tracks or upfit the Nautilus with valuable improvements like reinforced armor or torpedoes. But these are costly actions. You have precious few actions in each turn, and these repair and refit actions take two each. And like all actions in Nemo's War, success is not guaranteed. There are many ways to lose Nemo's War. If all the oceans are filled with ships and you can't place anymore, if you run any of the three resource tracks down to zero, or if you go too high on the notoriety track. Did I forget to mention the notoriety track? Attacking ships cost you notoriety, and some adventure cards do as well. Gain too much notoriety, and new, more dangerous battleships are added to the oceans. Eventually, you become so notorious that the nations of the world put aside their differences, unite to defeat you, and you lose the game. But at least you have the satisfaction of knowing you were a scourge of the seas. If you do make it to the end of the adventure deck without losing the game, you haven't won yet. Now you total up your score. Tokens are provided to help you keep score as you go, but I often forget to use them in the heat of the moment and lose track, so I just keep a paper and pen ready to tally my score at the end. Scoring is a complex affair, with dozens of small calculations based on the point modifiers from your motive. Final scores range from defeat to failure, inconsequential, success, or triumph. A triumph is at least 275 points, so there's some math involved. Nemo's War is a love letter to the novel 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea. Every card from the adventure deck includes a quote from the novel, and the deck is even divided into acts. Each of the dozens of ship tokens is named after a real ship from the era when the book was written. 
and wherever possible, the illustration of the ship is drawn from contemporary images of that actual ship. Speaking of art, the cards and tokens are illustrated with magnificent fine line drawings by Ian O'Toole. The art looks like it could have come from an original printing of 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea. The effect is as if you were inhabiting the novel. My favorite thematic touch is at the end of the game. The box includes a book of epilogues. After scoring, you look up the appropriate epilogue for the motive you played and the score level you reached, and you get a description of what happened to Captain Nemo, along with a full-page illustration. Your performance in the game determines the end of Nemo's life story, as if you were rewriting the novel every time you play the game. My one issue with Nemo's War is how heavily luck-based it is. You're rolling dice almost constantly. Dice rolls to pass or fail most cards. Dice rolls to play ships every turn. Dice rolls to see how many actions you get. Dice rolls to resolve almost every action. Dice rolls when you attack ships and when ships attack you. This makes thematic sense. The game is about war and exploration on the high seas. That's a setting where no amount of careful planning can guarantee success. But, however much sense it makes within the theme, Nemo's war is unforgiving towards bad luck to a level that can feel punishing. And I find it pretty frustrating. I might have even rage quit a game of Nemo's War because I couldn't get a decent dice roll to save my life and the game went so badly so fast that there just didn't seem any point in continuing. What can I say? The dice hated me that day. There is a co-op variant of Nemo's War, but I haven't had the chance to play it. To be honest, what I like about co-op games is working together to solve a puzzle, and that's not how Nemo's War feels. I think I'll continue enjoying it as a solo game for now. Would I like Nemo's War as much as I do if it weren't based on a book I love? Honestly, I'm not sure, but any game that lets me live inside a beloved book for an afternoon is a winner with me. Liking solo games, loving 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea, and not being too put off by luck may seem like a narrowly defined audience, but it describes me pretty much to a T. If that's you as well, then you probably already own Nemo's War, and I wish you joy of your grand adventure. My name is Sarah, and when I'm not arming the steam torpedoes, you can find me on Twitter, at Sarah Ovenall. Hi, I'm Mason Weaver. Let's talk about Chicago Express. I don't consider myself into train games, but there are certainly some I've played that I like quite a bit, Martin Wallace's Steam being notable among those. I also don't think of myself as being into auction games, but there are several Kinesia titles that I like too. As you well know, we're a two-player household, so it's hard to fit train games into my life. Often auction heavy, usually best for three to five players, and really, both Megan and I are largely indifferent to the theme. But I bought Chicago Express on a whim last year because it was on sale at an extreme discount and I felt like buying something. It's a no-luck, stock-buying, company investment route builder about connecting the eastern seaboard with the American Midwest, which sounds hatefully boring if I'm being honest. However, Chicago Express is, in fact, a medium-weight economic puzzle that played very enjoyably for me at both two and three players. Now, the box says you can play up to six, but I can't imagine why you'd want to. Four players would be great, five would be manageable, but I think six would just be chaos. The Board Game Geek community poll on player count seems pretty down on this at two-player, so I guess it depends on who you're playing against. We really liked it. I think, like a lot of highly interactive games, it's just very different at two-player versus three-player, but I enjoyed it just as much. So what's going on in Chicago Express? There are six different railroad companies, each of a different color. You're buying stock in them and then expanding them across the hex-covered map to increase their value. Occasionally, you get paid out dividends of the stock you own from all the companies, and the person with the most money wins at the end of the game. There's some really cool ideas worked into this design, especially the pressure gauges on the board that track player actions and also act as the round timer. 
On your turn, you can either expand any railroad you own a share in, up to three spaces, develop a space that has a train on it, which is basically putting a rail yard in a city or logging or mining out in the forest or mountains, or start an auction for a share of one of the companies. It costs a company money to expand, but the primary way for those companies to get money is from you, the player. When you buy shares in a company, that money doesn't go back into the bank, it goes into the company to be spent on a future turn. In turn, the only way for you to get money is by owning shares of a company that pays out dividends. This isn't exactly a perfect information game, as auctions in Chicago Express are really the only unknown variable, and even then, all the money is open. The key decision points in the game are, do I buy this stock, how much am I willing to pay, and how high is everyone else willing to go? Now obviously there's a certain amount of on-the-fly math you need to do during an auction, which is most likely why I lost. The calculation of pay X amount now, knowing that there are likely only X number of possible payouts left, is really a lot harder than I thought it would be. And while it's not what I would call punishing, in a two-player game it definitely came back to bite me. It's probably worth noting that if you have a wild card in your game group, someone who likes to bid crazy amounts of money for things and doesn't care whether or not they win, Chicago Express may not be a good fit. You'll be well rewarded for cautious, steady growth and prudent stock buys. This is not an outrageous party game. This is a stare at the board and do some math game. The round timing is really interesting in Chicago Express as it dictates a lot of choices. There are three red pressure gauges on the board, and every time a player takes an action, the corresponding gauge moves up one space. There are three auction spaces, four development spaces, and five expansion spaces. When two of the gauges top out, the round is over and all the companies pay out dividends. So on your turn, you must choose an action and move its gauge but you may choose to actually take the action. So the gauges move no matter what, but if you can't or don't want to do anything, you don't have to. And this is the single most important factor in my wanting to play Chicago Express again. I never want to play anything where someone can go bankrupt and be out. I absolutely hate player elimination. Chicago Express gets around that by allowing a player to advance the game to a payday without punishing them for running out of money. The provenance of Chicago Express is frankly a little weird. It was originally published by Winsome Games in 2007 as Wabash Cannonball. Queen Games picked it up in 2008, retitled it, and provided all new artwork. There are several other Winsome train games they did around the same time. Kansas Pacific, German Railways, and Paris Connection. This is good for you and me, especially, because all of these games have been dirt cheap on Amazon over the last year. Chicago Express is around $15 most of the time, and the rest of them have both risen and dropped in price, sometimes bottoming out around $12. If you're at all interested in any of these very good train games, do yourself a favor and set an alert on one of the Amazon price tracking websites so you'll know when they drop again. Now, as to other winsome games, well, good luck. You can buy them on the secondary market, usually $75 to $100, or sign up for their Yahoo group, they don't have a website, and pre-order their set of once-yearly Essen releases, if you'll be at Essen, which sell out in a few hours after they become available. It seems like the following summer, they offer a few copies of the previous year's Essen sets, but good luck getting those either. But the Queen edition of Chicago Express that I have is very high quality, has a relatively reasonable box for a Queen game. Still too deep, but that's my eternal gripe, isn't it? The illustration in this Queen edition is done by one of my favorite board game artists, Michael Menzel, and it does not disappoint. Now, I haven't mentioned a designer's name in this segment, because that's a bit of an open question. The box says Harry Wu, but the general consensus seems to be that both this and some of the other designers of licensed winsome games are actually pseudonyms, possibly for publisher John Borer, but that's just internet speculation. So, who should buy Chicago Express? People who like economic games. People who like route building. People who like push-your-luck auctions. People who like no-luck strategies. And people who like spending an hour expanding a company across the country, only to have control of it snatched away by wealthier shareholders buying up your stock. I give Chicago Express 8 out of 8 shovels of coal into the firebox of the Wabash Cannonball. I'm Mason Weaver. You can find me on Twitter at Mason A. Weaver. 
So, I'm a big fan of thematic heroes. I love pushing those soulless cubes around the board. But if the theme doesn't make sense with the actions I'm taking, well, that just takes me right out of the game. So knowing that, or maybe not even knowing that, for the past couple of years, friends kept recommending that I try the games of Vita Lacerda. Deep, medium-heavy games that really simulate whatever they are covering. So I took a look, then a while later looked again, and again. But frankly, each time I looked, I felt like the game was a bit too complex for me. But then Eagle Griffin Games announced a new edition of Vinos. Wine, yes. I know a thing or two about wine and winemaking. And Vidal announced that it was going to be a new streamlined edition. Hey, I like streamlined. And the art by Eno 2 looked magnificent. So I backed it before even trying it. In Vinos, you are buying vineyards, building them up, producing wine, and entering that wine into competitions to score points for making the best quality wine. If viticulture is the micro view of owning and running a vineyard, Vinos is the macro view of running multiple vineyards. Similar themes, and I think viticulture probably helped me understand the concepts, but play is a bit different. Over the course of six harvests, you are attempting to build your sole vineyard into a conglomerate of up to five vineyards, and outcompete the other players in three wine fairs. In this game, there are only 9 action spaces and 8 actions. The main and duplicated action spot is to buy 2 new vineyards for your player board. You can either add a second matching vineyard to one you already have, or if the wine color or region are different, they are added to another section of the map. There are only 2 of each color and region combination, so it's good to get both if you can. Though, you can't ever buy 2 from the same region in the same buy action. Each vineyard also gives you a special bonus. Having a winery, an enologist in your winery, and or farmers in your field help you produce better wine. After two rounds is the harvest, where depending on the current vintage card you make wine, assuming you can get to a quality level of one, which is sometimes difficult if the current weather is, say, negative two. Wine experts help you take actions, or you can save them and use them to improve your score during the fairs. Sellers help you age wine for better quality after production. Adding a cellar also allows you to keep a wine for up to 4 harvests, but wine tends not to stick around too long in this game. In Vinyas, you need to churn a lot of wine, both high quality wine for the fairs and to sell, and cheap wine to give away to gain magnet bonus tiles after the fairs. So how does the fair work? Well, the quick and dirty is that you want to turn in good wine in the color that Annabella wants, the value that Bruno wants, and from the region that Carolina is looking for. You get points for the quality, you choose your turn order, claim extra barrels from the two of the three magnates, then discard cheap wine to collect magnate tiles which give you free actions or end of game scoring opportunities. I could go into details, but frankly Paul Grogan of Gaming Rules has an excellent video of how to play that you should watch instead. I'll put the link in the show notes. Really, my point is that it all makes sense. You're making wine, some good wine, some not so good wine, you're hunting wine that people want in a contest, you're selling wine for money, and you're exporting wine for prestige points. I kept waiting for that one point that didn't make sense to me, but I never hit it. The game is also super smooth with just those 9 action spaces. And you never get blocked out. Not really. If you want to go somewhere someone else's, you just have to pay a bag out to the people who are already there. There's also one bag out to the bank if you want to take the action that the current year marker is in, but this seems less punitive and more encouraging you to consider other options. It also encourages you to collect wine expert and magnate tiles that let you do things you want to do either without paying to move into the occupied spot or to just do the action, often at a discount. Even in my 4 player game, no one seemed particularly hurting for not being able to do the actions that they wanted. Maybe they couldn't do it that round, but they could set themselves up for the next round which is generally a good strategy you want to use no matter the player count. So let's talk versions. 
At the moment, I have the 2016 Special Vintage Kickstarter Edition. This version is seriously overproduced to the point where some optional things actually detract from the game, such as the big white winery buildings, but you can ignore those. The 2010 board is also included on the flip side. I did try that once, but after playing the 2016 edition, I found the banking mechanism to be convoluted, but I know several people who like that edition better. My edition also came with more modules that I will likely ever play. Out of my five plays, the only additional module I've used has been the solo variant, a card-based opponent called Lacerda. Who knows where they came up with that name. Frankly, for just two decks of cards, I found this variant to be pretty interesting. It's similar to a two-player game, but not so much as taken, so you're left with a ton of options. The only real impediment is the amount of money Lacerda costs you. I really like it, but I don't know that the setup time will allow this to be a regular solo game for me. Setup as a whole is long, but at least in multiplayer games you can get some help. So that's Finos Deluxe Edition. I know I skipped a lot. Go watch Paul's video. You won't regret it. I really like this game, and I'm super glad I bought it. I wouldn't introduce it to new players, but for me, I think this one barely edges out Viticulture as my Wang game of choice. But if you're wondering which to own, well, to quote a pretty popular meme these days, why not both? That's what I'm doing. Anyway, if you wish to discuss Vinos, wine, or frankly anything else, you can reach me on Twitter, at Mike Risley. Hello 5 by listeners, it's Ruth here, and today I was going to talk about a game that's been seeing a lot of recent play. Dice Forge, designed by Regis Bonasset and published by Libelid, is a dice customization game that's quickly become one of my husband's favorite games. And when he gets this enthusiastic about a tabletop game, well that's unusual. Published in 2017, the game features a super quick playtime, gorgeous art, and impressive components that all come together beautifully into a very light but still interesting engine builder. The game is set during a magical tournament, put on by the gods for their amusement. Players take on the role of heroes, competing to perform the most impressive feats and earn the most points. On a turn, all players will roll their dice to increase their available resources. And note that all players receive resources on every turn, whether they're the active player or not. After this roll, the active player alone gets to activate any once-per-turn card powers they've earned, before deciding whether to spend their main action for the turn, either in the temple, where they'll use gold to purchase new die faces, or out among the floating islands, where they'll use sun shards, moon shards, or a combination of both to perform feats, impressing the gods for points, and potentially earning new abilities. After 9 rounds, or 10 in a 3-player game, the tournament ends, with all players hoping to have earned enough points to be crowned the overall champion. The cards that represent the heroic feats to be performed throughout the tournament offer some variety in setup and playstyle, which I really appreciate. There's a basic setup of 7 moon cards, 7 sun cards, and 1 hydra that requires a combination of both to defeat it. But 4 each of the sun and moon cards have alternatives in the box, and so does the hydra. This allows players to customize the cards and abilities available, including swapping out cards that only give points for cards that provide instant, permanent, or once-per-turn effects. Some cards will give you a particular die face when collected, which affects your engine, while others can actually attack your opponents when earned, either by removing resources from them, or in one case forcing them to install a die face that, while it gives them a small amount of resources when rolled, also gives you resources as the player who actually owns that die face. The ability to include or remove these cards lets you tweak the game, and being able to add in more or less abilities also allows for some customization in the degree of overall complexity. 
Managing the resources you're earning is pretty key to doing well in Dice Forge, with players earning four different types in the form of gold, sun shards, moon shards, and victory points. And it's not just about getting as much as you can every turn. The tracks for the non-victory point currencies are capped, and so players who hoard a particular resource might find they run out of space to actually take the resources shown on their dice. So players sometimes have to decide whether to spend a turn grabbing an extension to their capacity, or spending a particular resource early in order to make space, or simply risk rolling something they can't store in the hopes of being able to set up for a high-cost action later on. The fact that there are various options to avoid capping out makes rolling something you can't store feel more like something you chose to risk, which I find lessens the sting a bit when it happens to me, since I'm the one who decided to push my luck. The initial setup on first opening the game is a little involved. I didn't find it too bad, however, as the first section of the roll sheet takes you through it, but it is a bit time-consuming. After that initial work, however, subsequent games are very quickly set up, with only choosing the set of cards you want to use being the part that takes any time. And the game is designed to have its insert act as a base for the temple that holds the available die faces, elevating them and adding to the visual appeal. The sleeve that holds the die faces securely in the temple board for storage also has a guide to where they go and can be used as an easily passed reference sheet. And all that initial work that you did setting everything up also makes it pretty speedy to put the game away, with the insert holding everything nice and securely in the box. It's an absolutely gorgeous game on the table, full of impressive art and vivid dreamy color. But Dice Forge does suffer from an issue I mentioned when discussing Warful Bonanza back in episode 5. There are two colors of dice that are nigh indistinguishable. Now, as long as every player gets one each of the two sets of starting faces, then the color of the cores doesn't actually matter. But it is a little laughable to even think of calling them dark and light, as they do in the rolls. Core color aside, the dice are nice and chunky, and the faces are very attractive. Though I will mention the design on one of my starting faces got pretty badly scraped up, so be careful if your players try to use external tools for removal and that face removal can be fiddly. The rules say to use the face you're about to install as a lever to remove the old one, which seems to work well, though personally I actually just use the side of my finger to pop it off. A removal tool might have been useful, especially where mobility or dexterity is reduced, so just be aware of this if someone in your group might need some assistance. In the end, Dice Forge is a quick playing engine building game that in all honesty could go a bit longer, but once you realize how short the game is, it's a lot easier to gauge when to focus on points more on improving your dice, and really that 30-45 to 45 minute playtime helps the game get to the table more often. It's easy to teach, it looks gorgeous, and once prepped, it doesn't take very long to set up, so I definitely think it's worth checking out. Just be aware that it is a very light game. And until next time, I'm going to be wistfully longing to be at Gen Con. But if you'd like to join me in participating in Gen Cant, you can find me at sequentialgamer.wordpress.com or on Twitter at Roof. That's an R, four O's, and an F. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening to the Five By. If you'd like to follow us, please do head over to Twitter at Five By Games, or like us on Facebook at facebook.com slash five by games, or join our BGG Guild number 2810. You can listen to the Five By on iTunes, Stitcher, or Google Play, or follow all of our links on the Five By at fiveside.com. The Five By is a member of the Inside Voices Network. Find out more at insidevoicesnetwork.com.